Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. In this mini-series of podcasts, we're exploring the causes, implications and impact of problem debt for the families who are struggling with it. The stories in these podcasts come from the book Life in the Debt Trap by Saw Shimani and Larissa Popel, who both work as researchers for the Children's Society. This is the third and final episode in the series in which we're telling Amara's story about her dreams and how fragile these are when your childhood is overshadowed by debt. It's read by Saoirse. Amara Elwood has a dream. She is 14 years old and lives with her mother, her occasional father, her three siblings and one of their on-again, off-again boyfriends in a three-bedroom terrace house on a large estate in the north of England. There's little furniture in their home, no table in the dining room, just a two-seater sofa whose corduroy cover is ripped and stained. No stand for the hand-me-down television in the living room, just a collection of ragtag cushions and old blankets on the floor in front of it that double as a bed for Amara's older sister and her sometimes partner. And there's no bed in one of the upstairs bedrooms, just a thin foam mattress on the laminate floor which has bubbled up around the leaky radiator pipes. There are no doors or tyres on the car that lies rusting in the backyard, home to a rescue puppy who is not yet house-trained and is banned from being indoors. Sitting on a chrome and PVC chair in the middle of the kitchen, Amara thinks of her dream and smiles. She stops picking at the foam coming out of the chair seat, puts her hands under her thighs as if to contain them, and looks me directly in the eye for the first time. The sparkle in hers seems to speak of a vision that is so much bigger than career aspiration or chosen vocational path. It's a whole life imagined, conjured up out of the broken paving slabs and emptiness that characterise her neighbourhood and the material scarcity that marks her home, a future as somebody who matters. Ever since she can remember, Amara has wanted to be a nurse. She says she doesn't know where she got the idea from. It could have been from school, it could have been from the television, it could have been from the time she visited her nan in hospital after her kidney operation. She just knows that when she was little, at every opportunity she had to wear fancy dress, she would put on her little nurse's outfit and will the day it would no longer be make-believe. She says that she'd love to wear those smart blue scrubs and one of those little pocket watches for real, take people's temperatures, do their injections and help them get better. She's so proud of not being squeamish that she didn't flinch at the blood that came from her knee when she fell on some broken glass at the local wreck a few months previously. But then she says, that's not what I will be, it's just what I want to be. And quick as it came, the glint in her eye, her dream, vanishes, replaced by the vacant stare from earlier, a shrug of the shoulders, a sigh that's barely audible. It's an if-I-was-somebody-else kind of dream, a dream of having a dream, a vision once removed. She explains that her mother wanted to work in a dentist once, and that had come to nothing, so her notion of being a nurse will be similarly fated. She says, I don't know, it just won't happen. Anyway, we probably won't have the money. Amara knows that household finances are tight, and prohibitively so, that they currently live on benefits that don't cover the cost of the things they need, that one of her teachers bought her school uniform because her mum couldn't afford it, that her mother owes money to many people and that they don't have enough money to go on holiday but instead spend the interminable weeks of summer at home, hungry, bored and getting on each other's nerves. She knows that her mother has credit cards and that she does not think she will ever be able to pay back the debt on them. She was at home when the bailiffs came and her mother had happily let them in so they could see for themselves that there was nothing of value to take. 
When she was younger, Amara's mother trained in food preparation and started out as a chef's assistant, working her way up the ranks towards the middle management of a catering company, although even then she relied on credit cards to cover the cost of things that her low wages didn't. But her finances deteriorated quickly after she had three debilitating pregnancies, an abusive relationship with a man whose presence affected her benefit entitlement, but whose main contribution was a wild and destructive temper. And she went on to develop a host of mental health problems that left her scared to venture out of the house on her own for weeks on end and unable to work. For the past few years, she has bumped along the questionable line that separates the have-littles from the have-nots with credit card debt a persistent feature on her financial landscape, stubborn in its refusal to rescind. A year before the interview, things became really difficult after she had an operation and ended up with an infection that left her hospitalised and distracted from her financial commitments. She relied on the credit cards to help with the cost of living, shoes for the children, credit for the mobile, petrol for the car before it broke down, and to try and make Christmases and birthdays ones for the children to remember. Her current financial situation seems complex and I struggle to keep up as she talks through what she is entitled to in benefits and what she pays out each week, but then goes on to explain that her tax credits have been stopped since one of her sons stopped attending school and her housing benefit is on hold pending an investigation into the status of her ex-partner within the home. She's hoping to get her benefits reinstated soon with back payments as she is now in arrears with her rent council tax and television licence and she's been to court for these and incurred even more costs in the process. She tries not to use her credit cards, the debt on them currently stands at around £12,000 but sometimes when the food parcels and handouts for gas and electricity are not forthcoming from the Tenants Association or from the staff at Amara School she has no option. They're double-edged swords allowing her to get by while other income sources are unavailable but tethering her to a future of repayments. For Amara's mother, who faces credit card debts that she believes will stretch well into the sixth decade of her life, the idea of seeing her daughter through nursing college is a remote and frankly unappealing prospect. Of course, she would love to see Amara happy and settled in a successful career as she moves into adulthood. What parent doesn't want this for their children? But she cannot be the one to provide the financial support for that endeavour. She is no stranger herself to curbing ambition, having been repeatedly priced out of her own dreams, first of training as a dental hygienist, then of setting up her own business, and most recently of becoming an event planner. And she thinks that Amara will have to learn the hard way that the real limit to aspiration is money and not the sky. For Amara, aware of her mother's thwarted ambitions and mindful of the cost of studying and wary of accruing debt, the prospect of becoming a nurse has ebbed and flowed with the tide of her mother's financial fortunes, but seems now perhaps more of a fantasy than a dream, a place in her imagination she visits every now and then, or a convenient response when people ask her, as they always do, what she wants to do when she's older. In the throes of poverty and debt, Amara and her mother have adjusted their dreams downwards, concerned mainly with the here and now of scraping by, and on the face of it, this seems like a sensible response to the financial predicament they're in. It's just that they have done so to such a degree that they have all but abandoned the very things that once gave them hope and kept them going. But we'd be wrong to imagine that Amara and her mother are passive in the face of their curbed ambitions. To the contrary, they draw on a convincing narrative that allows them to cope with the reality of not only living but dreaming within their means. When I remark to Amara, 
that it seems a shame to give up on her nursing idea, that she seemed so happy thinking about it earlier. She replies, well, at least I'm not in jail, and talks about a boy from the neighbourhood who's currently serving a six-year prison sentence and won't be out until Lamara turns 17. When I ask her mother how she copes with the strains of poverty and debt and with the depression that medication never quite shifts, the anxiety that keeps her awake at night, and the agoraphobia that prevents her from attending counselling sessions at the local community centre. She says that some people have it much worse, and when she thinks of that, it's easier to cope. It doesn't make the debts or poverty or other hardships go away, but it helps to know that things are not a whole lot tougher. And she talks about her best friend whose daughter died 18 months previously. Her life now a memory, marked at home by an untouched bedroom and at the graveside by fresh flowers once a month and one of those helium balloons on her would-be birthday. Amara's mother says that even though things are hard, what with having no money and a stack of debts, at least her children are alive and she thanks her lucky stars for this. At least my children are alive. At least I'm not in jail. Amara and her mother, along with some of our other participants, point readily to the extremes of human suffering in those around them. The bereavement, the suicide, the mental health problems, the childhood cancer, the bullying, the imprisonment. And they tell themselves that things are not so bad in their own lives after all. And this may function as an effective psychological coping tactic, up to a point. But when that narrative is repeated often enough when it's used time and again to paper over the cracks of a broken vision, it can come to eclipse that vision altogether until, again, people lose sight of the dreams they once held dear. Hopes, visions, aspirations, dreams, whatever we call them, they sit at the heart of the credit card industry, exploited in marketing and advertising campaigns for the hold they have over people's decisions and related financial behaviours. Without them, lenders would have, li have little sway over their customers. Sometimes the dreams are modest and they speak of the normalisation of poverty, a desire to make it through to payday, to pay off outstanding household bills, to replace a broken washing machine or fix a burst water pipe. At other times, dreams are made of bigger stuff, taking a trip of a lifetime, studying for higher education, financing a wedding or renovating a home. Big or small credit card providers rely on people's dreams to encourage borrowing, tapping into the universal search for a better life to persuade would-be customers to engage with their products. And yet for some, it is through this very borrowing that dreams can fall by the wayside, as poverty lingers, income shocks occur, debts become entrenched, and the curbing of ambition passes down through the generations. It's time to leave Amara's house so that she and her mother can clean up after the puppy, which somehow found its way inside and managed to defecate on the floor, along the skirting and up one of the walls in the living room while we were talking. On the way out, I see a clipping from a local newspaper lying on the kitchen counter with a photograph of Amara under the headline Star Pupil Banks Brownie Points. Maybe this will provide an opportunity to end on a positive note. There's been little else in my visit to facilitate this. But when I ask about the article, Amara shrugs, although her mother beams and explains how Amara did so well on her work experience at the nearby branch of an international bank that the bank contacted the school and commended her hard work to the head teacher who in turn phoned the local press and presented Amara with an achievement certificate and 50 house points. Amara's mother looks to her daughter as she ventures that working in a bank would make a good career as she would not have to pay to study first. She could just start earning as soon as she left school. But Amara snatches the clipping and says, I hated it. It was the most boring week of my life. 
and I leave the two of them arguing over what the future might hold, hoping that if I ever return, there might be a set of blue scrubs with one of those little pocket watches hanging on the back of the kitchen door where Amara's school uniform is now, the cloths of her dream. Thank you, Sorsha. Um, we're now joined by Larissa and Sam Royston, who is a Director of Policy and Research at the Children's Society and author of Broken Benefits, um, to discuss the themes of the story and to highlight what we can learn and hopefully what we can do to help families struggling and to help children hold on to their dreams. Um, the first question I wanted to ask um, from Amira's story was, how does debt create this hopelessness? Um, what's the process? I guess the first thing to say is that it doesn't always, <laughs> you know, for, for each of the stories in the book, we're kind of using them as illustrative case studies, if you like. Um, and it was, it, it was an issue, not just for that particular young person, but more broadly for some of the people in the sample, but, but not for everybody. Um, there, there really is a mix as, you know, as there would be a mix of different personality types and different kind of household Mm -hmm. dynamics and lots of different things feeding into that um but for I think actually what's going on is not so much that it creates a lack of hope but that that the the horizons of of that hope shrink so that it becomes about just wanting to be financially solvent for the parents and for the children to um just want to be able to, as we were talking in in the previous podcast, just be able to fit in with their friends rather than yeah. dreaming of anything kind of of anything bigger. So they're forced to prioritise, really. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's. I mean, it's it it's. I may be stating the obvious, but when when there's something like poverty and problem debt, and where there's you know the debts are kind of stacking up, and there's a number of them people's attention becomes focused on that because the the consequences of not servicing your debts are can can be really severe so it becomes a kind of household priority in a lot of cases and it and and you can see how that would just become dominant in the discourse within the home and it and to a certain extent normalized where it's all about we can't do this because we haven't got the money because we got to pay the council tax from last month mm. or um, there's one of the other stories the the tyranny of small things where the young person who's a, a teenage boy actually says at some point all I want for the future is to be able to bring in some money wow. for the for the home um, and to help his mum and it, how that happens I think is as I just said you know the kind of the the process is just this sense of there's a problem and it's not going to go away and we need to focus all of our attention on also doing other things as well let's not imagine that you know it's all about the debt that people are living their lives and trying to you know have some sense of normality as well but it, it it does become more of a dominant feature in in discussions at home um, you use the phrase uh, "children adjust their dreams downwards," mm. I mean, which I thought was quite an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, so, what are the consequences then for children like Amara when they lose hope and mm. adjust their dreams downwards? How does that change their world and change their behaviours? I guess in in lots of different ways. I mean, ultimately, if 
she does go on to not pursue that you know earlier dream on again off again dream of becoming a nurse then she won't have the opportunity to fulfill her potential so there's something quite kind of fundamental for her as a you know as a person as a human being an individual just not being able to live a life that she imagined she would be able to live um i think for parents there's quite i felt that there was quite often a sense of parental failure you know Mm. if if you're and guilt actually for parents who knew that their children were either so the, the the guy that i spoke about earlier in the the story the tyranny of small things he had wanted to be a musician and his mom knew that and he then in the interview was saying all i want to do is just be able to bring some money in to help my mom and she knew that he had done that that he was kind of adjusting his dreams as well so she then felt absolutely terrible but was also reliant on him or waiting for him to get a job to be able to contribute so i think it's yeah it, it affects kind of young people's and parents' sense of themselves. And their relationships with each other. And their relationships with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially it could make them stronger, I guess, but it must also be very difficult when you're managing things like guilt and debt and coping with all those things all together. So for the children, obviously they're at schools and we know that schools often provide handouts and food to pupils. Um, I think lots of families find it difficult during summer holidays, don't they, because they don't get that support. Um, So Sam, I wondered if you could talk a bit about what role schools play in helping families manage the impact of debt and is there more that they could be doing or is there more that they could be supported to do? Uh, Well, there's a... There's a huge role for schools in uh, supporting children uh, in families struggling with debts and struggling with poverty. Um, we know that in many cases schools don't don't do as much as they as they could be doing. We know that you know children are you know stigmatised as a result of free school meals receipt, which we talked talked about in the context of another uh, one of the other stories. We know that in some cases, um, school uniform policies mean that um, children may um, not be able to afford the, 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 you know, a clean, fresh school uniform every day because their family isn't isn't able to kind of afford the cost of providing sufficient schoolware. We know that in some cases, children, the the very school that children go to, may be uh, affected by the cost by the cost which the parents know they'll incur if their child goes to that school and certainly children's choice of things like lessons um, particularly in kind of further education may be affected by some of the costs so you know we've we've spoken to children in the past who have said that you know they wouldn't do kind of a photography class because they knew that they'd have to kind of um, get a camera or um, they you know there was one case where um, a child was involved in a um, a kind of cookery class in school and all of the children at the end of the class got to take home their cake but they had to pay for the ingredients and that child hadn't been able to pay for the ingredients so the cake got thrown away it got thrown away and you just think what a, what an incredibly short-sighted policy and the the issue is that um Schools aren't allowed for, to charge for things which are a kind of core part of the kind of educational provision, but things which are extra 
So taking the cake home, for example, might be seen as extra. They can charge for, um, okay. and schools kind of can feel under kind of budgetary pressure, budgetary pressure to do so. But the exclusion that children feel as a result of uh, kind of things like that is is enormous. It must be very painful. And in in some cases, there are children with kind of particular additional needs that may be particularly affected, both in school but in a wider context as well. So in Amara's case, though, we talk don't talk about any care responsibilities that. that that I noted in the course of the story, it is notable that she's caring for her or in a family where her parent or the, the one permanent parent in the household is um, uh, has ill health. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the Children's Society works with a lot of young people who do have those kind of caring responsibilities, uh, young carers supporting uh, a parent or a sibling uh, affected by disability or ill health. And we know that that kind of puts a huge amount of pressure uh, on them and makes it much harder for them to participate in uh, education uh, and indeed in friendships and other kind of um, activities. But um, the combined pressure of caring combined with being on a low income can be just absolutely phenomenal. I really worry that there are a lot of... Because, you know, young carers are often in families where the parent because of ill health or disability isn't working or is working small numbers of hours um the 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 family may also be living on a low income uh and the challenges that that presents for the child who may have to take on additional caring responsibilities because their family aren't able to afford private care services um just adds to that kind of can add to that sense of exclusion as well because it may be that you know they're not able to complete their homework because they're looking after their mum or dad or you know they're not getting a good night's rest because they're getting up in the night to kind of care for somebody uh, and all of that really stacks the odds against the child being able to make the most of their education. Is there much support out there for children with caring responsibilities now? Um, Not nearly as much as there should be. Um, I mean, local government is under enormous pressure, so kind of the provision of social care for adults with disabilities or families affected by disability or ill health um, is, is much more limited than it should be. And actually a lot of the changes to the benefit system in recent years, which provides crucial additional financial support uh, for families with disabilities. A lot of the reductions in support that there have been in recent years particularly affect um, people with uh, people with disabilities. So um, it's a really it's a really difficult environment at the moment for people who are in those kinds of circumstances. And I suppose even where there is support available, it goes back to the issue we were talking about in the other podcast. It's about knowing how to access that support as well, isn't it? And if you are a child who's looking after someone, how do you, you don't even know that kind of stuff is out there unless someone tells you, do you? Absolutely. And actually, one of the things that we've found through some of our young carers' work is that often young people who are caring are often managing the family's finances. I mean, even more so than some of the stories that have been in in this book, where, you know, it's clear that children and young people are aware of 
um, financial difficulties within the household and it's having an impact on them. In a lot of cases where there are young, where young carers are looking after a disabled parent, um, they are in some circumstances dealing directly with managing the whole, all of the finances for the whole family. And the pressure that must put on young people is enormous. Well, in the midst of all that, you're never going to hold on to your dreams. You're never going to have time to be thinking about what you want to be and what you would like to do when you grow up because it must just be overwhelming as a child. What's well, overwhelming as an adult, mm-hmm. isn't it, to have that kind of pressure? But as a child, that's I huge. Think, I think one of the really interesting things is how actually it's... And one of the really sad things is that it, it's not. It, it's actually normalised. There's a sense of oh, it. Sometimes okay. other other research that I've done, and partly in the debt research, it's when young people get much older and they reflect back that they have and they've had a chance to be out in the wider world and meet other people and see other people's lives and how they okay. how they pan out. That they look back and they go, oh, that actually wasn't. Um, everyone's experience and that wasn't the experience that I wanted mm. and you know there's something about being in it which it is a challenge as a social researcher to go asking people about these things that we think are particularly problematic and when that is just their normal everyday life sometimes people do kind of reflect on it when they're in it but it's it is also more often I think that they reflect back when they get older I think one of the really um important points to raise and I I think we've skirted a bit around the edges of it but maybe not said it explicitly is around in terms of how we support people what provision there is you know we've talked a lot about debt advice agencies about benefit system about um, local welfare that there's something for me in all of this in all of the stories and all of the interviews that we did that is about attitudes and judgment and perception and uh, the kind of discourse that people have around around problem debt that it's and and in some cases that's what seems to cut deepest so people obviously as a parent you want to be able to feed your children and it it is awful if you know that they're going hungry or not quite having the nutritious food you want to feed them Mm. And it's awful that they're wearing shoes that are two sizes too small. But there's something in the way that people, that parents talk about it, that just indicates that what cuts even deeper is how they're judged by other people for failing, for and for the for the young people as well. It's it's not, you know, it is a, it's a shame for them. They they want to have that experience of say going to the cinema or going bowling. Mm-hmm. But what is worse is feeling that you're being judged by your peers for not being able to afford it. There's, and and I, I don't know what the kind of, the, what the <clears throat> solution is for that. Yeah. I think telling stories is part of the solution. But so yeah, I, this, yeah. your book addresses that in some ways by telling the stories and allowing us to experience the feelings we have when we read these stories mm. in this book. And, and your point, Sorsha, connects to something you were saying earlier about the normalisation of the experiences because I think often what young people will do is, yes, they'll normalise it, 
but they'll also they'll know that there's no realistic possibility of them having certain things you know so coming back to the adjusting dreams downwards mm. then they, they will know that there's no realistic possibility of them having you know all of the art materials that they would like to have in order to do you know um, art GCSE or something and so they'll tell themselves and they'll tell you that they don't actually want those things those things aren't important yeah. to you um, and you change your own story don't absolutely you? Yeah. because it's too painful to go I want that and I can't have it it's a lot mm. easier to say I can't have that but I didn't want it anyway yeah. mm. and that's something that we saw very powerfully in this piece of what's, research that's exactly what Amara does isn't it yeah yeah yes what's, re- what's really funny is funny in one respect is that debt has always been about dreams from the point that money was created debt was about dreams it was about in some ways a kind of positive a positive vision it's you know about borrowing money so that you can build a new factory so that you can you know have more money in the future it's about kind of borrowing resource in order to create in order to create more so that you can have a better Mm. a better life or every society can have a better life in the future but what that for many people is experienced as is something which crushes their dreams. It's a yeah, kind of yeah. it's that weird combination of it is both something which is played upon mm-hmm. and creates dreams for people, but at the same time can reduce the capacity of people in some circumstances mm-hmm. where it goes wrong mm-hmm. to kind of yeah. meet their aspirations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that comes to the judgments that are made about there's clearly Um, a narrative around good debts and bad debts and some debts you know the the kind of debts that we all have are seen to be good ones you know getting a mortgage to buy a house well that's a good one but this idea that there are um, there are families who've become indebted because they've just sort of um, they've chased dreams and they bought sort of um, things that they shouldn't be spending their money on, um, you know, really, I think that, that there's a very, very strong narrative around that. And I would question whether there is any real truth in that, because in every story that we heard, um, that it, it's very, very difficult to sort of actually distinguish between those two things. We all do a bit of all of it, really. We're probably all walking quite a fine line between the two, like reading mm. the stories in the book. It makes made me realise how potentially vulnerable we all are. Thank you, everyone, for that, that was an interesting discussion. Um, Life in the Debt Trap is available on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.